Support for this podcast is provided by Avalara. If you're responsible for the financial well-being of any company, you've probably heard about Avalara. And if not, listen up. Avalara are the folks who simplify sales tax for businesses of all kinds. As we've covered on this podcast, there are endless complications in sales tax. For example, if you buy deodorant in Texas, you're going to get charged sales tax, but not if you buy antiperspirant. Who would know this stuff? Well, Avalara does, because they keep track of thousands and thousands of products and how they're taxed in more than 13,000 tax jurisdictions in the United States alone. With more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can be sales tax ready at avalara.com slash tax notes. That's avalara.com slash tax notes. Avalara. Tax compliance done right. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, interacting with the IRS. Tax practitioners have long held an important role in the U.S. tax system, often serving as liaisons between our nation's tax agency and its taxpayers. They're in regular communication with the IRS on behalf of clients, connecting with the IRS employees online, by phone, email, and, yes, often still fax. But what happens when those lines of communication break down? And how have tax practitioners connected with the IRS despite lockdowns and other challenges posed by the coronavirus pandemic? Here to talk more about this is Tax Notes senior reporter William Hoffman. Bill, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, David. Now, before we discuss the two guests you spoke with, I first want to get some background from you on why tax practitioners need to be able to reach the IRS. What sort of information are they looking for? And is this typical of the profession or, or more a result of recent extensive tax law changes? Well, everyone in the tax profession depends on IRS communications to some extent, and tax practitioners more than most. There are numerous channels available for tax professionals to request information and ask questions of the IRS. But according to our sources, none of those channels is working effectively for preparers and their clients. Above all, what our guests and other tax practitioners want from the IRS is answers for themselves and their clients. And if not answers, then at least some clarity in how they are supposed to proceed, how long they'll have to wait, and maybe why the holdup on things like 2019 returns that haven't even been processed yet. While IRS communication seems to have deteriorated across the board over the last few years, the pandemic has definitely made things worse. But what we're hearing is that it's really Congress's repeatedly delayed responses to the pandemic and the IRS's lack of thorough guidance on how to comply, if not avoid various pitfalls, that have caused most of tax practitioners' recent issues with IRS communications. Now, can you tell us about your two guests and what you all talked about? I've talked with both Ava and Jeffrey for years. Ava Rosenberg is an enrolled agent who runs Tax Mama, an online tax advice service. She teaches tax law and representation, writes a syndicated tax column, offers continuing education courses, and is a frequent radio show guest. Jeffrey Schneider, also an enrolled agent, is principal at SFS Tax and Accounting Services. He was appointed to the IRS Advisory Council in 2018 and is a past president of the Florida Society of Enrolled Agents, as well as a former board director for the National Association of Enrolled Agents. I think both of them contribute a lot to the discussion on how to improve and especially where to improve IRS communications as we hopefully emerge from the pandemic and the IRS's long budget drought. All right, let's go to that interview. Welcome, Ava, and welcome, Jeffrey. 
We're talking today about how tax professionals are dealing with the various IRS communications channels, phone, fax, email, online accounts, guidance and instructions, and so on, and how those channels have fallen short as the agency continues to adapt to the unprecedented restrictions imposed by the worldwide COVID-19 pandemic. Let's put this in context first, Ava. Briefly tell me about your tax practice, its location, how many staff and how many clients, how many returns and what kind, anything that will put this into context for our listeners. Okay, well, basically, I'm phasing out most of my actual tax practice. I've sold the practice three times down to my last 10 or 15 clients until they die. My main focus is training tax professionals or tax preparers to pass the EA exam. And so my beat is dealing with the IRS return preparer office extensively and talking to them and emailing them on a very regular basis, advocating for everybody who is sitting for the EA exam and writing. So between writing and teaching, I am on the IRS website probably eight to 10 hours a day. How many practitioners would you estimate you deal with in a year at some professional level? thousands because I teach all over the place and uh, I have a very small staff. I have one part-time person physically in the office with me and several independent contractors around the country, around the world, helping with different parts of the school. But between the EA students and the people whose questions I answer, because I answer questions for tax professionals and the public, we've done thousands and thousands of those. I deal with several thousand tax practitioners in the course of a year. Okay, Jeffrey, same question to you. I am in South Florida. Actually, my office is located in Stewart, which is halfway between West Palm Beach and Fort Pierce. My practice, I do about 400 returns, including corporate, S-Corp, C-Corp, partnerships, trusts, estates, um, and of course, individuals. My biggest niche is I am a tax representative. I am a certified tax representation specialist. I deal with that on the IRS, oh, I would say five to six times a week, following up, new process, getting transcripts. So I deal with them not as much as Eva, but I deal with them on an extensive basis. Jeffrey, tell me how much time you spend communicating with the IRS through the various channels that I listed earlier and maybe any that I missed. Phone, fax, email, online accounts, you know, guidance and instructions. Obviously, that's one way for the most part. But which channels do you use the most and which the least? I call ACS, Automated Collection Service, and the Priority Practitioner Service all the time. Every time that there's a client that needs a transcript, every time they get a letter, I'm on the phone as opposed to just writing a letter because the IRS does open them. They just don't happen to process anything. Chuck Redding, their commissioner, said back in November, we opened up the final two million envelopes. So somebody asked, okay, how many have that been processed? He wouldn't answer. So they open them and then they leave them on somebody's desk. So I don't do much in the way of writing anymore. A phone call to these two different units is better. The phone call can take 15 minutes or it can take up to 45 to an hour. It depends upon the complexity of the case, how many years are involved, what level they're up to. If I just want transcript delivery, it takes a little shorter if I just want the transcripts, whether account transcripts, wage investment transcripts, or tax return transcripts or if I have to actually negotiate an installment agreement with the PPS or ACS right then and there. 
we're always hearing about how poor IRS customer phone service, particularly, but also the practitioner priority hotline and other resolution types of services are just overall historically. And I'm wondering how much worse they've gotten for you during the pandemic. Well, I use a service called Call NQ, and it's basically, it's like a routing, a call center type thing. You press one of their numbers, put in your account number, and usually I wait three minutes to get online. If I would call some of the offices, like the lean release office, the lean office, that can take, I could sit on the phone for an hour. I don't sit on the phone for an hour because I have to make other phone calls. So I use this call and queue all the time for the services that I subscribe to. And the worst I've ever had to wait was about nine minutes. What's your resolution rate through these channels that you are using? I mean, when you call the IRS, how often do you get an answer one way or another for your client, or at least move substantially in that direction? Well, it depends what I'm doing. If it's a straight installment agreement or a transcript delivery, it's resolved right then and there. If I have to do what we call a partial pay installment agreement, where I have to submit documents and so on, as opposed to just mailing the thing in, it has to go through its proper channels, depending upon the amount, it has to go through management, and sometimes it has to go through the council's office. Office and compromise, that's all by mail, to the offer unit, even if I'm dealing with a revenue officer or a settlement officer on an audit or a collection case, I send them a copy, but I also send it to the offer unit. And that can take anywhere, both of them can take anywhere upwards of a year. It used to be six to eight months. I had one that has took 16 months to do. I'm now in the middle of another one. It's been six months. So it's a very slow process. People are working from home sporadically. They're not coming into the office. So things have been drastically slower on all ends. And you just have to play peacekeeper with the taxpayer. Bill, let me jump in on the practitioner priority service because this is supposed to be our hotline. It's actually nicknamed the tax practitioner's hotline. And it used to be absolutely fabulous. You used to be able to call them, get information. They'd help you answer questions, not just pull transcripts. We used to have an office here in Los Angeles with an entire team, and we all knew the team. Now it's all centralized. The people staffing that office are no longer the cream of IRS. It used to be the cream, and they were the best, most experienced people. Most of them have retired. So these are newer people who don't have the expertise the training. Very often, they cannot answer your question. They don't even know they have the authority to pull some of the records that you're requesting. And, you know, a practitioner really needs to know what the practitioner priority service is for when they're told that something cannot be done. If the practitioner knows it can, we need to request a supervisor or a manager. Now, that used to be easier when they were in an office and there was a call center and they could call somebody over. Now they're working from home, so they have to maybe put you on holding and call somebody and, you know, conference them in or something like that. But they're doing less and less. They used to be able to give you many documents at one time and they would fax them to you. They won't fax them to you anymore. Now they will put them into your e-services account 
However, there is one thing that they are still able to do. And for many people, this is a lifesaver. The power of attorney, the form 2848 or the 8821, the tax authorization form that we normally would fax to the CAF unit, the centralized authorization file unit. When they go there, it is now taking weeks, three, six, 12 weeks to get processed. If we call the practitioner priority service first, fax it up to them, they will be able to pull the records that we need immediately. They'll put it into the system. It will still take quite a while. IRS had this whole webinar last December about how they've improved the electronic signatures for the 2848s, the 8821s, but they admitted they did not improve the processing speed. We're still hearing from people who submitted their documents eight weeks, 12 weeks ago. So the best way to do it, and by the way, I've been told people calling PPS, they will ask, have you already submitted your power of attorney to the CAF unit? They won't accept it. So don't submit it to the CAF unit first. Call them, submit your power of attorney via fax, and they'll be able to pull whatever you need. But only, I think, what, Jeff, three clients at a time? They'll only do three clients or three years? They will do 10. Okay. But they will transmit it to your e-services account. And if you can't get into your e-services account because your password expired again, you'll have to wait to actually access it, but you'll get there. Let me add about that. It used to be you were able to get your 2848s online directly. Then they went into this identity theft thing, and we understood that, but they asked the practitioner for their CAF number, of course. They asked for our date of birth and our social security number to see that we are who we are. I was a member of the Internal Revenue Service Advisory Council for three years, and one of the questions we asked if the PPS or the ACS people are asking this question, why can you not put a verification thing in the system with the same information? Nobody can come up with an answer. To me, as a non-computer person, it was a no-brainer. As far as the issue that Eva mentioned about if they ask you if your 2848 or 8821 has already been sent, they won't accept it. They've been asking me the last three months after the fact, because after we go through the whole thing, they said, you want me to send this to the CAF unit? And I said, sure, save me a fax. So they've been answering my questions because they asked that question after I already sent it and they started working on it. I still don't understand why they can't let the practitioner, they were supposed to let us do these tax accounts and all this, and that they say it's coming. Well, I've heard that for the last year and a half. That's a big issue to me. I think that's ridiculous. But like I said, I'm not a computer techie. I'm not a coder. But it is a pain. You got to tell the story, fax the 2848 or the 8821 if you're just doing transcripts, and then go tell the story again. If I find the IRS person on the phone is totally wrong, and I had that with an OIC reviewer, he thought cash and bank meant just cash in the person's pocket as opposed to it meant bank. Also, I talked to somebody else. I call back and using call and queue, I waited another three minutes. I didn't care if to go through it over again. I wanted to find somebody who knew what they were talking about. So I do that. Not a lot, but I do it in enough times. You can tell that it's a totally different personnel over the past year. Oh, yeah. Can I add something to that? Because that's an interesting point that Jeffrey just brought up, because we're running into people when we call whatever IRS department who may not be very cooperative. And by calling two or three or four times, we might end up with the right person who maybe can identify with the situation. So don't hesitate 
whether you're a taxpayer or a tax practitioner, don't hesitate, if you don't mind waiting, to call three or four times till you get somebody who will listen to you and it works. I'm telling you, Jeff is so right. It works. Sometimes doing that, you will get the resolution that you need. Jeffrey and Ava, let me generalize maybe a little bit from what you've been saying and other things that I've been hearing as a reporter, that it seems like there is this tension at the IRS on the one hand between live support and live assistance, and the IRS's increasing tendency to rely on electronic support and electronic communication. And they certainly complement each other but they are also in tension with each other. And I wonder if you see it that way, first of all, Ava, and if you do, whether it's been a net positive for your practice, a net negative or a wash. For the work that I do, I'm able to reach the people that I need to reach electronically on a regular basis. And, you know, if you know me, you know that I'm a serious pest and that I actually do reach out to the various contacts I have at the IRS, sometimes two or three times a day with information, updates, corrections, and so forth. So that saves me a lot of time because it gets directly to the right place. For a very long time, we have been advocating for online access for taxpayers and tax practitioners to be able to associate documents that we're sending to the IRS directly with the taxpayer's account with the correct year, with the correct audit, you know, offering compromise or whatever. And I'm really encouraged that sooner or later, we're going to have a good system that's going to work. They're starting to work a little bit with that. But here's the problem if they don't do that. Even before COVID, if you mailed something into the IRS, for instance, in response to an audit, they're big on the correspondence audits because it costs them pennies instead of, you know, hundreds of dollars. If you send in materials, some live person has to open the envelope, scan the documents, associate them with the correct file. And even before COVID, it took about three months and you're responding to a timely notice. It has to be in the file. And the examiner, for instance, doesn't get the response because it hasn't been scanned in. And so, you know, the notices start and so forth. Now with COVID, as Jeffrey pointed out, Chuck Redding, the commissioner said they've opened all the physical, the snail mail they have, but they haven't actually read it or processed it or scanned it because they are totally shorthanded. And the word is, according to Aaron Collins, the taxpayer advocate recently, there are 25 million tax returns behind from last year that they haven't processed. So, you know, those are the ones that were mailed in since last March. So I am really looking forward to better security. And the IRS has a team. They've got two, you know, czars that are handling converting everything to the modern era and and electronically making things available. So that is a huge priority. And and it's part of the Taxpayer First Act from a couple of years ago that they do this. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing that start getting implemented more and more within the next year or so. I know when we talked, I said 10 years, but I, I really believe within a year or two, we'll have better stuff. So it seems that you're saying that the electronic communications haven't gone far enough yet. Not yet. Jeffrey, do you see it that way? I totally concur with that. They are so far beyond what they tell us they're going to do. We've been hearing a lot of this for several years now. 
now they're saying COVID is a problem. There's always something that is causing this delay. The IRS wants us, and they call us stakeholders. They want the practitioner to be their eyes and ears, which is okay. Normally, that's an efficient tax system, except in my opinion, they're not giving us the tools to be effective. And customer service, a lot of people, my clients said, well, I call customer service. They said, I said, well, yeah, who's the person on the phone's customer? You or the IRS? And people don't realize that. They're not looking out for your best interest. They're looking out for the government's best interest. So you got to be careful when you're dealing with them, even from a practitioner standpoint, who you're talking to. You need to stand firm in your case as long as your case is a good one. Well, it seems, Jeffrey, that part of what you're saying is then that while electronic communication needs to advance, customer service can't be left behind. Yeah, the customer service, I haven't been on the straight 1040 number in number of years, basically, because I use this call in queue. I had to get a lien released due to a sale. So I did a 911, dealt with taxpayer advocate. They are so short behind. They, there's just so much they can do. I had to deal with the Puerto Rico office as opposed to a local office. And I would never get a call until after six o'clock at night when I was dealing with this. And the person who was doing the lien release was transferred to another department, never told me, came back. A 30-day process took 65 days. And my client who wanted to sell their house was almost sued because it was past the contractual deadline. So the IRS is because of their downsizing and because Congress won't give them the money for this or for that. They are actually in a worse position, which makes us in a worse position, but taxpayers don't care. You know, we're the person in front. So, you know, don't kill the messenger. Well, they kill the messenger. Let me tell you about something that, that I went through entirely electronically. I'm tax mama. I get people writing to me. One woman wrote to me and said that she was just catching up filing about 10 years worth of tax returns and that she was owed about $100,000, but they were out of statute. If you file the tax return more than three years late, you're not going to get that money back. And I started asking her some questions and found out that she had been ill. Number of different things going on. And I decided that I thought she would qualify to get that money back. So through my contacts at the stakeholder liaison and the taxpayer advocate service, well, first I tried to do it through appeals and appeals just blew me off. So through my contacts at the taxpayer advocate's office, and IRS stakeholder liaison here in Los Angeles, we connected with the right person at the taxpayer advocate by phone and electronically and by fax. And they started investigating the case. And although it took about a year to do the entire investigation and give them the letters and documentation that they required, everything was done by phone and fax and email. And she got $100,000 back. So you can do this all you know, without sitting on hold forever, but knowing the system and knowing the laws. And it's really important if you're doing representation like Jeffrey and I do, a taxpayer has to thoroughly know how to use the Internal Revenue Manual. That's the IRS's you know, employee policy manual, their entire operations manual. And if you know how to use it, you're going to find the solution to practically anything. I don't think I've ever had had a penalty not abated because of using that, except maybe a late payment penalty. Well, you bring up an interesting issue. Tax professionals have access to some tools that aren't available or generally known to the public. You mentioned the IRM. 
Jeffrey mentioned earlier on uh, call-in queue, subscription phone service for tax preparers to advance in line, potentially saving, well, apparently saving hours on hold. Tax professionals also have access to IRS phone directories that put them in direct contact with agency staff who can resolve problems or more effectively point tax pros to other help. So in this internet age that seems to empower people to think that access to information makes them experts, how do you make the case for the special access that tax professionals have? All right, let me take a a shot at that. A lot of the tools that we use are available to the public. They just don't know about it. That's the difference between a self-prepared return or a self-represented pro se taxpayer and using somebody like an EA or a CPA or an attorney. The IRM is there. You just have to know where to go to find it. Now, once you find it, the hard part is knowing what to do with it when you see it and how to interpret whatever they say. Call NQ, again, anybody can buy it, but taxpayers not going to buy it. So there are a lot of tools that are still open to people to do it themselves, just like you can buy $49 Tax Act or TurboTax to do the tax return. Is it advisable? No. I have one client that I'm dealing with now, and the revenue officer who's dealing with the collection agent said to me, he said, well, your client said X, Y, Z, and I almost died. And because once a taxpayer says something, you can't put it in. You can't take it back. So you have to work around it. So tax practitioners, if you're dealing representation, as Ava said, you need to express upon your client, don't talk, even if you think it's going to help, because generally it doesn't. And use the tools that are available, whether out to the public or not. I belong to about nine Facebook groups, seven of them are EA tax groups. And even if I don't participate answering questions, I just read the threads and you say, oh, that happened. So not everybody knows everything. So use whatever you have at your disposal, no matter how simple it is. Obviously, you can't quote as precedent the Facebook quote. But once you get that, you can do your Google search. You can check the regs. You check the IRM. And then you can go on and and support your case. Ava, I just wanted to ask if you had any experience with these internet know-it-alls who seem to pop up claiming that because they read something online, they are now an expert in medical procedures or tax law. Tax Mama has been answering questions for the public for literally 20 years now. It's actually the 21st year. And people will come in and they'll say, well, I heard this or that or the other. And I ask them to try to give me the reference for where they heard it or read it so that maybe it could turn out to be right. Most of the time, it's absurd. It's, uh, you know, a myth or whatever. But earlier this year, somebody brought up a question and the article that he referenced was by a journalist. It was a rare article where she didn't quote any experts at all. She didn't identify the source of the information. But after I did a lot more digging, and I really spent three days digging, I found out that her information was actually correct, and I found the citation. So that was a rare instance where somebody came up with something, and they turned out to be right, and it was something I didn't know was in the law. There's really only two writers that I think are legitimate out there. So you got to be careful what you're reading. I always tell my client, if anybody tells you anything, ignore it. Because like Ava said, 99 out of 100 times, whatever you heard is wrong. Because we call it the telephone game. Goes in one ear, goes through the brain, comes out your mouth, 
totally different than what you heard of the first time. So you have to be very cognizant of who you're talking to and what, you know, what the topic is. Well, people have always come to professionals with bad information of one type or another long before the internet came around. I'm wondering if in the tax business, in your experience over, you know, your careers, whether you think the internet has made misinformation worse in the tax business, in tax law. Yeah, because it's not just the internet, it's also the do-it-yourself returns that have expanded. Several years ago, when I came out with the first edition of Small Business Taxes Made Easy, I was talking to Intuit about getting it included in their business TurboTax software. And they wanted to know if I would be a spokesperson for their software. And I said, no, because your software for business people doesn't work. They need to have a tax professional helping them and guiding them through their business accounting and their business taxes. So I cannot endorse that because it doesn't make sense. And so there's all of this do-it-yourself stuff. And somebody was just complaining to me that they were trying to do something in one of these tax software systems. And you know, we gave them advice on how to do what it was they were doing. He says, well, the software doesn't do that. I have to make all these manual entries myself to do what you're telling me to do. So what do I need the software for? You know, that's the whole point. It's not just about filling in and key punching stuff. It's about you have to know an ever increasingly large body of knowledge. And, you know, like right now I am updating material for the EA exam course, the question database, and I am changing and updating practically every question in the two or 3,000 questions in the database because information has changed. All of the IRS links have changed. IRS has just removed about half of Pub 17, which has been like the taxpayer's reference material for you know decades. Everything's changing. And as Jeffrey admonished me the other day, the publications are not a substantial authority, but for the taxpayers, they are the best tool they have available to summarize information. Jeffrey, what is the role and extent of your in-person contact with IRS personnel in the service of your clients now compared with, say, three years ago, you know, that is pre-pandemic? Basically, I've met one. Matter of fact, it was before the pandemic. So I have not met anybody face-to-face. We talked about probably going on three years. I met one we called a 4180 interview is when there's payroll issues and who's the responsible party. And usually I conduct that myself, but I thought it was for the benefit of the taxpayer because of what he does to explain the technicalities of what he does. And that's it. And that's all he did. And we came up to a mutual agreement. The manager was there and we basically got it settled face to face. A face to face better. Absolutely. I wish they would go to a different platform that we can talk face to face even on the, uh, like we're doing in Zoom. They don't like Zoom, they said it's not secure. Well, I don't know anything about that. Doctors even used virtual on the phone through different platforms. I don't know why the IRS can't. So I think face-to-face is very good, except I haven't had any in the past three years, except that one, and that was just before the pandemic hit, like about January-ish of last year. The pandemic made the IRS go more electronic than they ever saw before. They haven't gone far enough, in my opinion. 
you have to remember, even though Commissioner Reddick was in the field for 30 years as an attorney out from Los Angeles, even knows him. I've met him several times. Nicest of guys, if you take, you know, forget about that he's commissioner, but he's handful in a lot of things. The First Families Act, they required some things. Did they make them all, make the deadlines? No, but it's forcing them to look at different processes, just like any business. The IRS is a business. They're required to collect money and they need better processes and they're coming along. I just think the tax professional community, um, I'm not the only one, thinks it's not even close to being where it should be. What do you and your clients miss by not having an improved level of face-to-face communications with IRS personnel? Well, let's put it this way. When I was able to do audit representation here physically in Southern California, first of all, I knew most of the examiners in my general geographic area. I'm in the San Fernando Valley. Within, I don't know, a 10-mile radius, we have about three IRS offices where we have examiners or appeals people. I could walk in, sit down with a fully prepared file, hand them the documents they need, and I could be out of there in two hours with a resolved audit one way or another. And if I sit there quietly with my book and don't make a lot of noise and interrupt them, I can walk out with the audit determination letter and maybe even sign it if it was no change or a refund. Can't do that now. Now everything takes significantly longer because we have to do everything remotely. But I wanted to to address something about the changes that you were asking about and whether it's going to go back. Think about the budget the IRS has and how much they spend on rents and the buildings that they have been paying for. About 10 or 15 years ago, IRS and the CPA firms started not providing permanent office space for their staff. They started testing having people work from home and only come in maybe once a week, use a shared desk and so forth. And they were able to eliminate an entire floor or two of a building or an entire you know building facility. They were able to reduce rents dramatically by doing that and instead paying for a secure phone line and maybe a secure fire proof filing cabinet in the person's home. So I think that now that they have gotten the phone lines already set up to reach people remotely and you know they're going to expand on that, I think we're still going to have fewer and fewer people in offices and the budget will use that money perhaps for something more electronic. Well, I think that does it. Thank you, Ava. Thank you, Jeffrey, very much for your time. Always a joy. My pleasure. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now from her home is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief, Janelle Julian. Janelle, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, James Brown presents a way for LLC members to avoid self-employment tax on distributive shares of LLC profits. Tony Nitty reviews the standard for distinguishing taxable income from a gift. In Tax Notes State, David Futchman reviews personal jurisdiction developments relevant to e-commerce businesses. Jonathan Iverson examines the delayed payment of rebatable oil and gas production tax credits. In Tax Notes International, three PwC practitioners evaluate various methods for determining the taxable base for German withholding taxes on extraterritorial transfers of intellectual property registered in Germany. 
Mimi's song examines recent developments regarding transfer pricing documentation. On the opinions page, Joseph Thorndike examines President Biden's first 100 days in office. Robert Golder examines revisions to India's equalization levy under the country's new finance bill. Marisa Perry argues that opening the charitable contribution deduction to all taxpayers could help advance greater economic equity. You can read all that and a lot more in the pages of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at TaxDo, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.